calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Please be advised... This podcast episode contains sensitive content, which some people may find offensive or disturbing. You are one of the rare guys that can really rock a mustache. No, I was told by somebody else it looked a little cheesy. Hey everyone, I'm Evelyn, the host of Ruppin. We're living in an ever-changing and demanding world where everything is happening at an instant. There's instant coffee, instant messaging, instant food, and because of that, our behavior has reflected it. Now, generally speaking, we have shorter attention spans, we're less patient, and we can move on to other things pretty quickly. So when you meet my guest today, you'll see he's a bit of a unicorn. He was a politician, a veteran, but he's most known for being the former sheriff who for almost 20 years pursued and ultimately apprehended one of America's most prolific serial killers, Gary Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. Gary Ridgway was convicted for murdering 49 people and confessed and suspected to have taken anywhere from 71 to 90 or more lives. Can you imagine having the everyday resolve to pursue anything for almost 20 years, let alone an elusive killer? What does it take? And how does getting this unfiltered look at these grisly murders impact someone? How does one keep their humanity when you're exposed to so much brutality? Meet my guest who did all of this and more. Please welcome Dave Reichert. so much for coming on the podcast. I cannot wait to get into all the different stories and experiences that you have. You have appeared in numerous true crime documentaries, magazine articles, TV shows. Anytime that the Green River serial killer comes up, you're pretty much there because you were the lead detective who got him. Your recounts of the case has been very well documented. 
But I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about your personal experiences and what your process was at that particular time. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You started in the police force in 1972 and were recruited for the homicide division in 79, correct? Yes. So you worked on this case, which is one of the most notorious serial killer cases probably in American history. When you first started, like in 79, you were still pretty young in your career and you got on this high profile case. What were you experiencing? Because he had already committed many murders at that point, correct? Gary Ridgway? Yeah. So I, when I joined the homicide unit in 1979, I think it was March or April, I was 28 years old and I was going on nine years in the sheriff's office. So the first female prostitute murder that I was assigned was actually in January of 1982. And her name was Leanne Wilcox. And Wendy Caulfield was found in July of 1982 in the jurisdiction of the Kent Police Department, which is just south of Seattle. August 12th of 1982, I was dispatched to a scene that turned out to be Debbie Bonner, that was officially the first Green River victim. But before that, Leanne Wilcox and Wendy Caulfield were two cases that I was involved in and working with the Kent Police Department and trying to make a connection between those two. We did discover that they were cousins. Oh. And so we thought, okay, they know some of the same people. They've hung out at the same places. Uh, they could have met the same bad guy and, and met their demise. And so we were try already trying to connect those two cases prior to the first victim found in King County. The first victim found in the river was Wendy Caulfield. Second victim found in the river was Debbie Bonner, August 12th. On August 15th, um, Cynthia Hines, Marsha Chapman were found by a river rafter next to the river bank with rocks piled on top of them. As I, I was processing the scene, I found a third body on the bank and her name is Opal Mills. In my mind, when I started working Leanne Wilcox in 1982, I was working one homicide. Then I was working with Kent on Wendy Caulfield. I was working on two homicides possibly connected. My commitment is always doing everything that I can do to solve a case like that. You know, it's the most serious, obviously, of, of all cases that we investigate. And then when the third body was found, Debbie Bonner, certainly we tried to connect Debbie Bonner to Wendy Caulfield to Leanne Wilcox. And then when the other three bodies were found, we knew for certain we had a serial killer. When you were walking down to process the scene, when you discovered the third body, what was going through your mind? Could you wrap your head around this? Because you were still fairly young in your career. When you were standing there, like what was going through your, your head and what was that like for you? Yeah, this is a, a question I've been asked um, before and is a really hard one to explain to people who have not been in, you know, in that position. Yeah. Homicide detectives, police officers will, will understand this. We don't all, of course, think the same when we come upon a scene like this. But I remember I was very focused that day. I was taking photographs. I had assistants, other team members with me who were taking measurements. We had a team of at least 100 people that were combing the riverbanks for evidence that may be connected with any of these. 
so my thoughts were really focused on solving the crime. What did I see? How did the victims look? How were they laying? How were they dressed? What were their wounds? I mean, every detail that I could gather, I was, I was gathering. And, you know, as I was going through the crime scene, we, back in those days, it was a cassette tape recorder. And <laughs> right. so that was, you know, it was a big clunky uh, thing. It's like a size of a car battery. Uh, about the size of a small car battery. So I carried that around with my camera and dictated everything that I was doing and seeing. And then each detective, of course, was doing the same thing regarding their own activities. You know, what's striking to me is the separation that you have to make when you're there yeah. in the moment. I can't even imagine. And then later, you kind of get flooded with the emotions of what happened during that day at home. However, there, there's one particular point in that day that struck me right then. And that was not only just finding Opal Mills, not being aware that she was even there and finding another uh, dead 16-year-old girl, but uh, working my way down to the riverbank and, and then and processing the scene and helping to remove those bodies. We had divers in the water and then trying to move them up the bank. And I remember Cynthia Hines being on her stomach with rocks piled on top of her, her legs spread apart, motionless, obviously. And Marsha Chapman, however, it was face up. She was placed on her back with her legs apart, one arm pinned, both legs pinned, and one arm free. And the one arm was waving in the water as the river current passed over her. Thought passed through my mind that she was waving, saying, here I am, you know, here I am, help me. So I reached down uh, to help pull her out of the water. And as I did that, her hand came off in, in my hand. Oh, God. And of course, that was a, a moment of uh, you know, some, some emotion for me, of course, but you, I mean, you immediately refocus on your job and, and you're mentally taking notes again. Right. Everything that I've seen you in or appear in every documentary, you have never lost that sense of being so hardened because you have to be to protect yourself. I would imagine. I mean, even talking to you now, I can see the emotion on your face. And obviously these images are burned into your brain and your memory and your life. Yeah. So you have never lost your sense of humanity and what was really happening with these victims. When I say that you, you don't lose sight of what was happening, I mean, you remember that these were young girls, you know, someone's daughter, the humanity of it. How were you able to maintain that? And still do your job. Like at that moment when, my God, that story is horrific about like, you know, trying to pull her up. You could see her as a human, not as like a body or a prostitute or a scene you were processing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about like how you were able to do that? Like at that moment, especially? Yeah. Everyone has a story and everyone should share their stories because people can learn from each other through the stories that we tell. Absolutely. My story is one that should never have happened the way that it's unfolded for me. 
because of where I came from and how I was raised. But there was one key factor in my upbringing that I believe was really my saving grace. And that was that my grandfather on my mother's side was a Lutheran pastor. And he and his wife, my grandmother, were strong Christians. And my mother came with that. My father was a a Catholic, but still they had great faults, which were, were on full display during the upbringing of their seven children. But the one thing they did right was continue to teach us that God created this world and that God created each one of us equally. Right. And because we are all equal and because I think, too, where I came from, I saw myself really in their shoes. I was a runaway. Mm. I lived in in an old car that I had bought myself uh, when I was a senior in high school. I continued to go to school. I always joke that I went to school because of football and girls. (laughs) Good reasons, all good reasons. It may be reverse girls in football, but (laughs) (laughs) whatever, I was still in school and I graduated, but not with a very high grade point. And I'm dyslexic. I think that that strong belief and hope and faith and equality under God was really the key factor for me. I looked at these girls and young women who were victimized at home, like me, through living with domestic violence and surviving that, ran away from home, ended up being victimized again on the street. And then third, uh, they were victimized again by the criminal justice system because they were looked upon as criminals arrested for prostitution. We have evolved into a place where we now understand a little more. I think we don't do as good a job as we could but we've approved in providing services for those girls. They're on the street for a reason. Right. They didn't just wake up one morning and decide, you know what, I think I'm going to go out and try prostitution, drugs, and alcohol. Who does that? Yeah, nobody. No, no. There's always a catalyst or a reason for that. It's not a life or, or a way of life that anyone would choose. No. You know. But God has a plan and that every person has a life that has been gifted to them. And those young girls who were in that world had every right to live their life. And sometimes it takes time. If you were to talk to my old coaches in high school when I played, they would tell you that, you know, Dave was not the most cooperative, (laughs) mild-mannered teammate because I I would get angry at myself for every little mistake that I made. And so I took a lot of coaching. And these girls needed a lot of coaching from our community. Not every one of them came from families that created a situation where they had to run away. Some just fell in with the wrong wrong crowd. But that's why I think I was able to, even today, keep from becoming cynical and believing that everybody is bad. Yeah. The way I look at the world and people, we're all equal. We all make mistakes. We all deserve forgiveness. And that's not just from from my God, but for other people and whatever they believe. But it also means that forgiveness from other people. And that's in this world today, that's very rare. Yes, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. It's amazing that you, again, were able to maintain that sense of humanity and personalization and you've never lost sight of it. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You chased this case for 20 years and you wrote about it in your book. Dave, can you tell me about your book? And what I think is really interesting is the times that we're living in now, everything is instant, instant gratification, So as a general statement, our attention spans have sort of reflected that and people move on to things very quickly. Now, you persisted with this case for 20 years. From what I understand, the case went from a full task force to like, you know, nobody working on it for a number of years. You stayed on it. What kept you so resolute in your path and your persistence for justice, despite the fact that life keeps going. You have your own family. You have other homicide cases that you need to work on. You have other things that come to you that need your attention, but yet you persisted. Dave, tell me a little bit about the book, what we're going to learn in the book. And also, like, how did you stay so focused and dedicated to get Gary Ridgway? The title of the book is called Chasing the Devil. I didn't want to write the book in the first place. (laughs) I was convinced to write it by a number of people because the first thing I didn't want to do was to glorify me. I wanted to focus on the victims. And then I also wanted to make sure the entire team was recognized. It's, It's a story sort of about my life, starting with my childhood and starting with the story where I was kidnapped when I was 10 years old with a couple of other friends. Uh, We were out with our lunch bags with our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, we were going to build a camp in the woods. Three mid-20s guys came along, tied us to trees, ripped our shirts off, whipped us with branches, stomped on our sandwiches, forced us to eat dirt and rocks and gravel with these smashed sandwiches. I was finally able to escape, get back home, and my two friends were uh, freed. That's how the book starts. All the proceeds of the book go to help drug-addicted babies. The money goes to the Pediatric Interim Care Center in Kent, Washington. They take in drug-addicted babies, they get them off drugs, and then they find them home. So Incredible. Two of my grandchildren are adopted from the Pediatric Interim Care Center. Oh, Dave, that's great. The story sort of tells why I was so persistent. You're given gifts in your life. Mm -hmm. And one of those gifts I was given was never giving up. Part of that was the way I was raised. I grew up fighting in the neighborhood. It certainly wasn't in the slums. It wasn't a life that was as bad as some, but it wasn't as good as others. (laughs) Understood, understood, yeah. 
blue collar cops called to the homes at night on Friday and Saturday nights, you know, and the drinking and the fighting yeah. that went on. And we were taught to fight. I guess protecting my brothers and sisters and some of the smaller children in the neighborhood was sort of built into me. I was not the biggest guy when I was growing up. And I guess that's why I started lifting weights. I used to press a lot of heavy weight. Uh, of course, at my age, I can't. Uh, Dave, let me just say this. You look great. Dave literally just finished working out. It keeps me centered. But I really think that persistence it was a gift that was given to me through a variety of experiences. I could never see myself letting go of this case. How could you? A lot of people do, Dave. I don't understand. Can you tell me one moment within yourself that was a, a real defining moment that taught you something? One that I really don't like to talk about was, it's going back to the comment I made about my, my football coach. I was so hard on myself, so driven to be the best when I played sports. And the same with being a detective or a police officer or any challenge that came. I had a good friend who told me challenges don't exist, only opportunities. That's the way that I then approached this case. It was an opportunity to overcome. When I felt like the administration or other detectives may not be recognizing the opportunity to do the right thing, the right thing is defined by me, I would get a little... Um, Annoyed? Yes. That's Pissed pretty, off. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe a little too much so. I have apologized years ago uh, and one of my sergeants for not being the most cooperative. Those little instances helped me mature a, a little bit. I loved how you said challenges were opportunities. Being a human being, you have self-doubt. I mean, I have self-doubt just going through my day to day and I'm not dealing with anything remotely close to what you're dealing with and for 20 years. So there must have been many moments of self-doubt and just banging your head against the wall. Yeah. Can you share one moment what was going on and how did you sort of overcome it and go back to, hey, this is an opportunity? Well, I think everybody has moments of self-doubt. Yeah. For some reason, I never doubted that we would solve this case. Even in 1982, when the news media asked me, will you solve this case? There was no hesitation. Yes, we will solve this case. Did I think it would take, you know, as long as it did? No. There was a time where we, I think in 1986 or seven, where, you know, because we were collecting scores and scores of dead bodies in all states uh, of, of decomposition. I mean, it's too horrible to, to, to even describe. And I think if I tried, I would do a disservice because you're not there. You can't see it, smell it, and hear the other detectives and their comments and, and the silence in, in the woods and the, the way the body's positioned, et cetera. So we had searched the site and found something that we thought was going to be significant evidence. And it was microscopic glass beads. We thought, wow, this is, this is going to be the, the thing that solves this case. Because, of course, back then, there were no computers. We were doing things on, you know, keeping track of the case on Rolodex and hard copy files. Rolodex, you, you might have to explain that later to your listeners. <laughs> I know what a Rolodex is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm younger than you may not know what that is, but it's hard copy. It's, yeah, 
We didn't have the advantage of computers. We didn't have DNA. This glass bead was really important. We took it to the lab. They immediately began to look at and analyze it. Like, was it like a glass bead, like like a jewelry thing? No, microscopic. Oh, microscopic. How'd you even find it? Well, as we took the clothing in on the victims, it was found on some of their clothing. We had to determine the manufacturer. Imagine first collect the clothing, goes to the lab. The lab is now examining these items through their microscope. They find these microscopic beads. We now have to track down where these microscopic beads came from. Right. Who manufactures these beads and what do they use them for? And we discovered that these microscopic glass beads are used in painting the white lines that you see on the highways. Um, The yellow lines that you see on the highways, all the lines that are in the parking lots, parking garages, sidewalks. Everything, yeah. They were so freely used and around in our environment that uh, if you were to walk around in a parking lot, newly painted, fresh painted parking lot, these glass microscopic beads would be bouncing and floating around. And as you walk, they would stick to your shoes. They would stick to your pants, your socks. So every one of us gathers these microscopic glass beads at some point or another, depending upon where we go. When that news came, there was no lead. There was no evidence. Crushing. It's not like finally the paint evidence that we got that connected Gary Ridgway to three of the victims because that right. was specific to Kenworth trucks and he was a Kenworth painter, right? Right. That was a time when the detectives on the task force were very disappointed. I think around that same time, if my memory serves, the administration decided because of that and because we were continuing to collect all these bodies that maybe we should meet with a psychologist. That was sort of new back then too. Psychology, Yeah. Yeah course, we didn't do individual sessions. There were too many of us, but probably 50 of us showed up. We're tough cops. So we're not going to admit that we're, we've got any emotion going on. So we're sitting in the back with our arms crossed. We listened to the guy for a while. And one of the things that he did was he took a survey of all of us. How many of you think that this case is going to be solved from 100% to zero? Mark down where you think it's going to be. There are no names attached to this thing. Mm -hmm. So the form came back. He handed it back. And there were a lot of people in the 40, 50% range. There were some that were below that. And there were a couple in the 80% range. There was only one that was 100%. I knew who that was. You. Me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, why are those people that are thinking that we're not going to solve this case here? You know, the ones that were below 50%. Because to me, if I went to play a football game or basketball game, if I don't believe I am going to win it, why even play it? Every time I took the court or the field, I was going to win. Did I always win? No. Did we always win? No. But (laughs) that was my position was that the case will always be solved. I will never give up. Even though we had those ups and downs, there's another one that's been you know, fully reported. We went and searched the homes of some suspects and no evidence found to connect them. We searched Ridgeway's home. Yeah. um, And we couldn't find anything to connect. There's a photo of you like underneath his home, digging around, searching, and you guys found nothing. No, we we cut carpet out of his house. We took uh, clothing. We took, which 
fortunately for us, we kept all of those things because the clothing that we took eventually, yeah, you know, from his locker, we eventually matched that, as I said, to the paint on three of the victims. So you always approach, I guess, everything in, that you're doing with this, I'm g- going for the win. But just being human, like, it must have been very difficult to just persist when, you know, as time goes, resources get depleted or taken away, and you're still kind of left with the ball in your hand. How do you get your second, third, or hundredth wind? There were other detectives, too. After nine years, the county executive, the county council, just they closed the task force down. Right. And cut the budget. We were spending $2 million a year. We had 40,000 tip sheets or 10,000 uh, items of evidence. Right. And they didn't think we were going to solve the case. They thought we had the guy, Melvin Foster. They thought he was the guy. We weren't going to prove it. I was fortunate. I got promoted to sergeant right then and went to the area where the bodies were being dumped. That's where I worked on graveyard shifts. So I spent the night going from dump site to dump site to dump site when I wasn't managing other emergency calls and responding to urgent calls and managing my squad. That's how I spent my patrol nights. And then people were still calling me with tip sheets because my face and my name were still associated with this case. Then I would forward them down to Tom Jensen and Jim Doyen. We were the last three that were transferred out of the task force. Jim and Tom continued working. They went to major crimes. They continued working other murder cases. But Tom and Jim continued to manage the Green River case. Tom was awesome in managing computer information. And he never gave up. There's a lot of us who had that persistence. You had said something in a recent interview that I saw that really struck me. You said, and I'm going to paraphrase, when you're a police officer or you're, you know, one of the authorities that are in pursuit of these heinous crimes, you are sort of the dividing line between civility, normal people like me, layman's and society and the ugliness that can also exist. I'm going to recap this a little bit. When you're standing at that riverbank and you're looking at these girls that have been viciously killed. You have all of the senses, you know, you're smelling the air, you're smelling the decomposition, you're hearing the nuances of the whispers behind you. You have the woman's hand in your hand. You feel that texture and you have getting this full blast. I mean, because you are my barrier, right? Like I'm never going to witness the ugliness. And I think ugliness was still (laughs) the greatest understatement of all time. Horrendous. So how does this impact how you see people, humanity, and life? And how do you not get discouraged or just completely disheartened that good exists in this world? I know that good exists because uh, there are a lot of good people in this world. You know some and your listeners, each one of them can think of some very good people, very supportive, caring, loving people in their life. But there are evil people in this world period. There are people in this world who want to do harm to other people. The greatest example of that right now today is Putin. Look at the lives that he's taking, murdering. It's disgusting. I know there are evil people. I feel like uh, there are lots of good people, loving, caring people in this world. I know that my calling is the way I look at it, was to take these evil people off the street. My calling was to be a servant. 
when I was the sheriff, we looked for people who wanted to serve their community, not the people that were looking for action. And so I look at my job as being a servant. If you and I come to each day respecting each other as human beings and we're friends, as friends, we are going to want to help each other. Because of our friendship and because I know you care that much about me, you're going to be honest with me and I'm going to be honest with you. Honesty is one of those things that's today is out the window also, right? Yeah. What's even better is consistent honesty, which leads to integrity. Oh my God, yes. So now, right, we're looking for someone who has the heart of a servant, who has integrity, and then you build this team. Can you imagine a team put together with that combination? They become leaders and things begin to change then. So the core values that I put in the sheriff's office when I became the sheriff was leadership, integrity, service, and teamwork. And it spells the word list, so it's easy to remember. I tried to come up with it like a core value that spelled donut for the cops, but I just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> like it didn't. That would be great. We should work on that a little bit. You know, honesty certainly is, it's hard to find during these times that we're living in. Yeah. Dave, I totally subscribe to that same philosophy and thought, but I guess where are we losing it now? I'm not sure that honesty is at the very top of our list these days. Um, and again, this is, you know, generally speaking, and maybe we think that it is, but we're not paying that close attention. Or the flip side of it is they are being honest, but it's based on information that is not honest. Right. We need to be able to be open-minded enough to be discerning, you know, and not just accept every piece and bit of information that we get on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, or Instagram, yeah. Or anywhere, right? I think that it all begins in the family. Mm. It all begins when you're young. And uh, some of your younger listeners are going to say, okay, look, you know, this is a guy who's 71 years old, but I've been through a lot of shit in my life, uh, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I get the world. You, you know, if you're talking about servanthood and integrity and honesty and compassion and those things, that those are words we can use with every generation. Absolutely. I really believe that if you become a parent, you have a responsibility to raise your children with the qualities that we're talking about. Respect, especially in caring for other people, recognizing that we are all equal. And coming to each day with this attitude of my needs are not as important as the needs of someone else. Again, you've just witnessed such unspeakable horrors and you've had the full blast of it because you've lived it. And you know for real that evil exists because you've faced down Gary Ridgway, right? You've interviewed him. And Ted Bundy. Right. I've interviewed them both. So you faced evil, like in the most tangible way. How does this color how you see life? Right now in Washington state, they're talking about letting violent criminals out of prison and doing away with life without parole. That includes Gary Ridgway. How could you even consider allowing someone like Gary Ridgway, the remotest possibility of being out in the community again, when we know he has killed 65 to 70 people. He's pled guilty to killing 49 children, children and young women. We've closed 51 cases. He would travel to work, pick them up, kill them, rape them, rape them, kill them, rape them, go to work, leave them in the back of his truck with a canopy on it, 
at lunchtime, get in the truck, go to a dead end street, have sex with the dead body, go back to work, finish out a shift, drive home, have sex with the dead body, dump the dead body, go home, eat dinner and watch TV. And there are other people in prison all across this country that fall into the category of pure evil. Evil exists in this world and you are not going to change Gary Ridgway. You're not going to change. You go through a whole list of people that are in prison that have killed maybe one or two or three or four people. And what about the rights of the victims for crying out loud and their families? Come on. Back in the 90s and the early 2000s, we were all about victims' rights. And now we have totally thrown the victims under the bus and disregarded their lives as insignificant. And, you know, we're sorry it happened to you. But this person who has committed this crime grew up in a situation that just, you know, produced this violent, evil person we have to understand and have compassion. And I and we do, because again, we're all created by God. Everyone deserves a second chance, but sometimes that second chance is deserved only behind bars. And they can create their second chance by turning to God. That's their second chance because sooner or later we all end up in the same place. You know, I know where I'm going because I know what faith I have, but those who don't, like Gary Ridgway, I don't know what's in his heart, but um, I know what I saw deep in his eyes and deep in Ted Bundy's eyes and some other murderers that I have interviewed over my career who had no remorse and didn't give a shit about the people they killed. And these are the people that we're going to let out of prison back on the street. And the families are still here suffering with a loss that will never be forgotten. I just, I just don't understand uh, the direction that we're headed. It is so hard not to lose sight of what's good. And I'm saying that not even witnessing half the stuff that you've seen. So what's interesting to me is in the face of absolute unspeakable evil from people like Ridgway and Ted Bundy, who don't give a shit about what they do to people. The other side of it is you, who has so much humanity, despite the actual horrors that you have actually faced. It hasn't tainted your sense of goodness. Some may be, you know, very doubtful, but the two personalities that everyone knows about, Ridgway and Bundy, that I have interviewed, I think people would agree were evil people. And there is a difference in looking in the eyes of people like that than someone who, you know, has not committed such horrendous crimes against humanity. Of course, I'm not always calm, cool, and collected. I do have moments, and my wife will share that with you. She was here. <laughs> okay. But um, I got to get her number. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be 52 years in, in June, and we've known each other together for 54 years. But if it weren't for her supporting me, if I didn't have a family that supported me, again, back to the family, mm. and if I didn't have a friends, and if I didn't have the team that I had at mm. Green River, most of them, the ones that stayed, were just as committed, just as driven. They wanted to solve this case. The ones that stayed there Randy Mullinex, Tom Jensen, Jim Doyen, and there are some new detectives that came later after I was sheriff. Those are committed, passionate, caring people who never gave up. And when I look back at how I got here, 
can see moments when God's hand was at work. Being able to come from a home of domestic violence, running away from that home, not being a very good student, being fortunate enough to get a scholarship to play football. I, I didn't have the grades. They waived the grades and allowed me to go there. They gave me a job. They paid my tuition. Then to go into the Air Force, meet the young girl I did who became my wife, who was a part of the support I needed to move forward with the rest of what was ahead of me, being hired by the sheriff's office, being number 82 on a list of 110 people hired. I was not the smartest. I'm sure that people in the command staff back then didn't look at that list and go, you know that Dave Reichert, he's going to be something someday. (laughs) Having those things happen to me, two Valor Awards in my patrol career, just being assigned to the first body was, was more or less an accident. Walking by the sergeant's desk, who received the call from the comm center, looked up, saw me, and sent me out to the first body. That that set up the entire scenario of, of me and the lead detective in the next nine years of my life. I was promoted to lieutenant, went to the SWAT team. People are still calling me. Um, I still identified with you know, my face and my name, identified with the, with the case. I was promoted to captain, went back to the same precinct where the bodies were found and uh, Ridgeway was, was working. And so I spent a lot of time. I can't plan a, a, no. a life like that. Right. To come from where I come and have that happen. Then we solved the case through DNA. What I did is put together an evidence review team of five detectives, very secretive, no news media. But Tom Jensen put forth the DNA in March of 2001. We waited until September. It came back in September, matched Ridgeway's DNA. And that's when the rest of the investigation occurs. We arrest Ridgeway. Before all that, I'm asked by a political party here in the state of Washington to run for governor. And I said, I can't do that because we haven't caught him yet. I can't leave. So we catch him. And then people ask me to run for Congress. I spent 14 years in Congress. And then after that, I went to work for two and a half years working on human trafficking in Central America. My point is, you've got to have faith. You've got to have hope. You can do anything you want to do. If I can do the things that I did in this life, it's not due to me. I prayed for God's guidance. I still do today. If people think about their lives in that way, and you can look back, the older you get, the more of those little instances in your life you can see. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way to to think about it. And life certainly does work in mysterious ways, I guess you can say. But Dave, I'm going to ask you to sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. This is easy because we've just sort of kind of talked about it and wrapped it all up. So I, I'm Dave Reichert and I, I represent God, family, country. Thanks to Dave Reichert for guesting on the show, sharing his experiences, for his incredible dedication to his job and for his unwavering pursuit of justice. Next up is Hiro Kanagawa, who has over 200 film and TV credits. He's also an award-winning playwright, and he's joining the cast of Star Trek Discovery. Early on, I played so many coroners because the coroner also reinforces this stereotype of Asian men having a kind of sinister or impure relationship to death going back to Fu Manchu kamikazes and there's like a kind of image of death cult and uh, sinister association with death. 
which not surprisingly, not coincidentally, Asian male as coroner reinforces that. Hey everyone, this is Hiro Kanagawa. My episode of Reppin is coming up next. Do not miss it. Hiro's been at the forefront of breaking down barriers and he's gonna share what it's been like to experience the evolution of diversity in Hollywood. Don't forget to subscribe and share and leave a review. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or wherever you're listening. And I want to hear from you. So let me know your thoughts. And you can find me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Grab the episodes and get them on your devices because all of them are available for download. As always, thanks to Nelson Pinero for being my technical director and musical composer and to Gracie for her love and light. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.